If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi there, I'm Dave, Content Director for the History Extra podcast. I hope you don't mind this little interruption. We've welcomed a lot more listeners to our podcast over the past few months, and we're delighted and really grateful to have you on board. Thing is, we'd love it if a few more of you headed over to our website, historyextra.com, to check out some of our content there. We have thousands of features covering a wide variety of historical topics on the site, from ancient Rome, through medieval Europe, and right up to the 20th century. We've just released some exclusive podcasts onto the site too. These are recordings of lectures given at our 2019 History Weekends, and they include talks from Dan Jones on the Crusades, Yanina Ramirez on Medieval Wonder Women, Nicola Tallis on Margaret Beaufort, and Peter Caddick Adams on D-Day. Just head over to historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts to have a listen. I hope you enjoy them. And I hope you carry on listening to this podcast too. Thanks again. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation with the writer and historian Nicola Cornick. Nicola's new historical novel, The Forgotten Sister, is in part based on the life of Amy Robesart, 
who was the wife of Robert Dudley, himself a favourite of Queen Elizabeth I. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, caught up with Nicola to find out more about Amy's life and mysterious death, and also more broadly about the gaps in history that are ripe for speculation. Uh, So your new novel, The Forgotten Sister, tells the story of Amy Robsart, uh, and many will know her perhaps from her untimely death or her her marriage to Robert Dudley, uh, Elizabeth I's favourite. Your book looks a lot more um, at her life, um, at the the, the history that's not known. What what drew you particularly to her story? Um, I think um, I'm always drawn to the stories of women who, I, I think of them as being in the footnotes of history, if you like. So the thing about Amy... For me, well, there were several things I think came together with Amy Robsart's story. Uh, the first was that I felt that she she was constantly eclipsed by Elizabeth and by Robert Dudley because they're such huge uh, characters, aren't they? And they're very sparkly. Uh, and so poor poor Amy, uh, as you said, she really basically just gets mentioned as a footnote to their story and the fact that, and obviously because of her um, because of her mysterious death. And so I started to think, well, you know, who is the real woman behind this story? What what were the experiences in her life that actually led up to that point where mostly we only come in at the end? Um, and, um, and, and what had led to that point? Uh, so I wanted to research her birth and her background and where she came from and just have a think about the kind of influences on her as she was growing up and also her life with Robert before everything kind of got overshadowed by uh, by Elizabeth. Um, and also alongside that, I've, um, my, my sort of special interest as a historian is um, myths and, and legends that grow up around particular characters. And so I'm always fascinated by those people who live on. I think of it as their afterlife. So I really think of of this as Amy's afterlife. She's become so much more famous in the afterlife than she was in, in her time. Um, uh, and that completely fascinates me because some people, of course, get lost from history altogether, uh, whereas others uh, live on. And, of course, the stories about them grow and develop. So I was kind of looking at that as well in, in the book, um, the, all the stories about the hauntings and, and the ghosts of Amy and that kind of thing. So those two things together made her an irresistible uh, character to write about, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I wonder if, would you mind introducing us a bit a bit to Amy's life, what you found in your research, you know, b- before we get to um, the bigger moments that perhaps she's known for? Yes. I uh, Well, first of all, she was born into quite a, a sort of complicated uh, family in the sense that she was the youngest. Her father had already... Um, had an illegitimate son and then had married a widow who had four children of her own. So there there was a sort of quite a complicated family uh, dynamic going on there. She was born in Norfolk, which again, in that period, sort of she was born in 1532. Um, So although Norwich obviously was a a big thriving city, but even so Norfolk was considered quite a, a wild and lawless place. And it was so very different from uh, London and when you read about the court and of course Robert Dudley's subsequent career so I found that very interesting that kind of early influence her father was a, a very strong Protestant which uh, again probably was one of the reasons why um, he and, uh, and John Dudley Robert's father were naturally drawn together as, as allies um, 
but also would have been a strong influence on Amy's life um, as well. So I, I kind of enjoyed, there's very little in, in the record. So of course I was drawing on things like um, what sort of upbringing she would have had in a, a kind of gentleman's household, a modest. Uh, 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 Sir John Robsard, her father, was a was an influential gentleman, but it was nowhere near that rank of of nobility that she was soon going to sort of get swept up into. Um, also, I think about her um, education as well, because one of the odd enduring uh, myths about Amy is that she was illiterate. I think I blame Sir Walter Scott for that, because when he wrote about Amy in his book Kenilworth, uh, she was this sort of uh, pathetic victim who not only was uh, innocent and, and maltreated, but also was was it totally illiterate as well? Well, we know that isn't true. Of course, we've got actually got letters written by her. So all of, all of those things kind of um, really intrigued me. So it was, yeah, it was very interesting to imagine what her life would have been like and what her outlook would have been like coming from that kind of background. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think you do you do a great job of drawing that picture of you know a life of a of a gentleman's daughter um what what's known about the the when she encountered Dudley what was known about their marriage uh, initially you know how was that met at the time and and how was that perceived more generally I think that's interesting because um we haven't well, we've, we've kind of we've got our, our own speculation. I mean, again, a lot of it is focused on was it a love match? And of course, there were comments later, for example, by people like Cecil saying things like uh, that, that it was a carnal marriage, uh, and the implication being that they kind of fell madly in love with each other. Um, uh, and I think I think one of the things that historians have have discussed a lot and disagreed over was whether it was actually a love match. What happened? I mean, they may have met as children. We don't know for sure, but there's a possibility that they could have met when Amy certainly spent some time in the household of the Duchess of Norfolk. Whether that coincided with any trips to court and whether she would have met Robert Dudley then, we haven't got any uh, written evidence about that, but it's potentially, uh, it could have been that they met when they were young. Certainly they did meet um, when... um, uh, when when Robert went uh, north to put down Kett's rebellion, so um, they were both seventeen at the time, and you can it, uh, it, it's easy to imagine a kind of romantic meeting. He's he's seventeen and eager to go to battle. She's a, a very pretty girl. We know this because uh, it, again later in comments from ambassadors and various people, they refer to Robert Dudley's very beautiful wife. So you can it's easy to conjure this sort of idea of a, of them setting eyes on each other again and. It's, it's a, a sort of a, a coup de foudre. They're, they're madly in love, and that may be that may be what happened. We do know that um, certainly Robert and his father and some of his brothers, one of his brothers, I think, did stay at Stansfield at, at Sir John Robsart's Manor when they were uh, going north to to put down Kett's rebellion. So that is assumed to be the the occasion on which the two of them met again. Um, And from there, it all seems to have happened fairly quickly, which is another argument uh, that it it was a love match, that they were quite keen to marry each other. Because, of course, all of Robert's siblings uh, made very big aristocratic alliances. And so this was a considerably smaller affair, um, as witnessed by the fact, of course, that when they got married, it was after 
<laughs> it was a kind of like a secondary affair the day after his brother had got married in a great big uh, celebration. So it was all kind of very much second division marriage, really, because she was only the daughter of a gentleman. Um, so I can imagine at the time people probably thought, well, he could have done better for himself, uh, which again gives some sort of support to the idea that it was what Robert wanted at the time and that they were, were pretty keen on each other, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, is it fair to say that, you know, he comes across it in your account in, in other sources as this fairly ambitious individual? Um, so if we move to his relationship with Elizabeth, you know, what, where does that sit in his life? How did he pursue that? What's known about that? Yes, I think I think one of the impressions I had about Robert when I was reading about him um, I mean, he doesn't come over particularly well in the book, I think it's fair to say. Um, and he was, even in the early stages, well, when he and Amy were first um, were, were first married, and actually sort of kind of going back a step there, um, it was a way, marrying her was a way to establish himself in that particular part of the world that fitted his father's ambitions to have a stronger presence uh, as a counterbalance to the Duke of Norfolk in, in East Anglia. So... Um, so it wasn't all one-sided. It wasn't just Amy kind of making a really dazzling match. There were material benefits to Robert to increasing his estates and his influence in, in Norfolk. And I think that fits really well with what you've uh, said about, about his character, because absolutely, you see it all the way through. So, for example, after uh, the, the failure of the plot to put Jane Grey on the throne when he was in the Tower of London, he somehow extraordinarily manages to come back from that before it's even before we're even on to Elizabeth's time. He comes back from that uh, in order by, by joining the retinue of Philip of Spain, Mary's husband. Now, that seems a very unlikely kind of involvement and yet somehow he manages to become popular one of Philip's because uh, I guess you know he was a young man he was his his prowess and uh, jousting and all the other things it, it was he was part of that sort of peacocking court uh, the, the the masculine side of things there and and he and I find that extraordinary that from from being the person sent to actually try and apprehend Mary Mary Tudor in order to prevent her from from gaining the throne there's this kind of turnaround where whilst obviously he was in no way in favour with her he was certainly uh, part of Philip's retinue so even before he spies the main chance with Elizabeth I think you know he's he's kind of in there still working his way his way up and then of course it becomes apparent that Mary's um, unlikely to have a child and that her uh, her health is poor. Um, and I think all the way along, he had a particular connection with Elizabeth even before that. But it's from that point where we see Mary in decline. I think that you realise, you see Robert realising, OK, you know, I, I, I've got a really, a really massive opportunity here now with Elizabeth. It, it's all going to come right uh, and from then on, his focus just seems to be entirely on her and poor old Amy gets um, sent off to the country. <laughs> and so that's the end of that for her, really. Mm-hmm. I know it is. I mean, I, I know you just said you don't necessarily want to have the whole picture of her being mistreated and, you know, a complete cipher for this sadness. But um, obviously she was very, you know, hard done by. And and what, what kind of evidence is there for how much she knew about Robert and Elizabeth's uh, relationship? You know, how much was she, did she know? How much did she feel that humiliation or, you know, what, what was her feeling? 
there's very little um, uh, expression of that from her directly because we don't have um, letters from her expressing, uh, you know, her, her sorrow. We can infer from the fact that there was general gossip about uh, Robert and Elizabeth that that would have reached her ears, I think, um, and also from comments made by her servants, for example, after she died, um, that she was that there were times when she she was very sad and, and had actually prayed to be released from this sort of misery. Um, so I think, with a, as with a lot of these things where the evidence is very sparse, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of speculation, but I think it, it's, it's strongly suggested that she was aware of his relationship with Elizabeth, the fact that he spent all his time uh, at court and and they barely saw each other towards the end of her life you know they had one or two meetings and uh, and really it kind of felt as though she had just been tidied away if you like in first to Throcking where where she was put up at you know in a manor house belonging to one of Robert's friends and then shifted a bit like a piece of unwanted luggage is the feeling that you get she's moved from there over to Cumnor um, out of the way and to these incredibly tiny sort of um, uh, places, hamlets, where there's no society. I mean, I know, obviously, Cumnor was not that far from Abingdon and Oxford, but even so, and Throcking, you know, a village of eight people, it, it, it contrasted with the, the kind of exciting life he's having at court, it feels very, very unkind. So, yes, it's... it's um, it's it's hard because I suppose we're also putting our own our own feelings into that that you know if, if you get shunted off somewhere and left on your own you are basically going to be very unhappy and then if you hear rumours about your husband and some other woman who happens to be the queen even more so so yes I think we can't get away from the fact that that part of her life must have been must have been very sad I think. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I think what I was trying to do with my research into the book and also with the story itself was just to say, you know, Amy deserves to be more than just a woman in the footnotes. And it's interesting to find out more about her as that historical character rather than somebody who's just swept up in the bigger narrative of Robert and Elizabeth. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. You mentioned Kumna there, and I wonder if before we perhaps go to, you know, that that's obviously the site of her death, before we talk about that event, um, can we talk about the 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 halls that you, you feature in your book? Because a lot of your books are set or inspired by these Gothic halls or, or manors around. What what was Kumna like? Well, Kumna, of course, isn't there anymore. Yeah. And actually, um in 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 a in a funny kind of way, that its presence is still very strong. Um, I mean, one of the things I have done in in my books, oddly, is write about various places that aren't there anymore or places that are there that that have fallen into into disrepair because that really fascinates me, the kind of the idea of uh, of previous glories and how that's that's gone. And, of course, the thing about Cumna that is particularly interesting and I do bring into the book from, from, from my perspective was the way it was reused. I absolutely love this idea that at the beginning of the 19th century, um, the the, the Earl Earl of Abingdon moved um, all the, well, reused the stone from Cumnor, which had fallen into disrepair by the middle of the 18th century, to build a new house over at Witham near Oxford and to rebuild the church. So this idea of transferring part of the actual fabric of the building as well as the kind of the memories associated with that went somewhere else and so I I, I, um, I do particularly enjoy this idea that there are feelings and um, memories associated very strongly with particular buildings um, and that sometimes you can sort of tap into that if you go to the site as you say you go somewhere like Cumnor um, you stand by the church where the manor house was um, and you can kind of just absorb the sense of, of, of the atmosphere of it and the sense of what it would have been like in the uh, 16th century. Mm-hmm. And it is at the, this site that um, Amy dies. Perhaps we can go into the events and what's known, sort of specifically known, and then perhaps what avenues are open for speculation without giving away too much of, of what you, you do in your book. <laughs> OK, yes. Well, um, all, all that uh, all that is definitely known is that on the eighth of September, fifteen sixty, um, Amy fell down a flight of stairs and was found with a broken neck at the bottom of the stairs. Um, and as soon as uh, word got to Robert that this had happened, he he sent one of his men, uh, Thomas Blount, to interview. The, the, um, the, the servants and the staff to find out what had happened. So we have a record of what they have said the kind of the events were running up to this from, uh, from his interviews afterwards. So, for example, uh, we're told 
um, that um, she Amy had been in a strange mood that day. It was actually a Sunday, but she had encouraged all of the ha- all of the members of the household to go to the fair in Abingdon, um, as though she wanted to be alone. She was in a bad mood. Some uh, some of the some of her servants said, um, and when two two of the ladies of the household refused to go, saying it wasn't appropriate on a Sunday for gentlewomen to go to the fair, um, she got very cross and and, uh, and said, "Oh well, you know, fair enough if you want to stay here, but kind of leave me alone." So there was from the start this suggestion that she'd been in a a sad mood a sort of a despairing mood that day which is where the idea came from that she might have thrown herself down the stairs but of course um a mysterious death like that uh, was immediately seized upon as suspicious by those people who wanted to use it against Robert Dudley and I think it was he immediately cottoned on to the fact that this was actually very bad news for him. One of the things that I actually don't like about Robert was that as far as I'm aware, he didn't once express any sorrow for the fact that she had died. He met, he just said, I hear my wife's fallen down, obviously I'm paraphrasing, I hear my wife's fallen down the stairs. Uh, what's going on? And can you make sure that none of this reflects badly on me? And so, of course, um, you know, your sympathies are not really with him. Uh, even if he didn't know anything about it or wasn't involved in any kind of foul play, it it doesn't come over terribly well. Um, So, yes, immediately there were these these two theories, competing theories, that either she'd killed herself because he had been so cruel to her or possibly that he had arranged for somebody to uh, push her down the stairs um, so um, so that he could marry uh, Elizabeth because they had been so close and there was a lot of speculation about it and added into all of these this gossip and scandal that had been going around was the fact that there were rumours that Amy had been ill so you know was it a natural death uh, but also suggestions that Elizabeth herself had known that or said aloud that Amy was about to, to die how did she know this so all of this huge morass of of sort of um uh, of, of gossip and, and rumour all came together and um, really um, and Robert was trying to sort of fight his way through this to find to, to find out well one conjectures what, what, what really happened um, assuming that he didn't already know um, and uh, so yes we've got these kind of competing narratives of, 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 of what, what happened in the run-up to Amy's death um, and what had caused it. Hmm. Uh, and your novel then explores um, with this uh, effective split timeline narrative. You know, there's there's a window there for uh, for speculation. There's historical gaps that you know can be filled by fiction. So, what can you say about that process? <laughs> yes. Well, I always think um, as somebody who's uh, who's who's studied um, history. Uh, uh, I mean, st- and public history. Uh, there's always a kind of a, a, a slight. Uh, discordance in my head uh, a dissonance between facts and fictions it's quite hard when you're a historian who's also a fiction writer um, but I have learned as I've gone along that the, the actually sometimes the gaps between uh, fact and fiction are maybe narrower than you think because uh, obviously any historian is writing a narrative they put a perspective on it so as you say absolutely um, as, a, as a historical novelist the gaps in the record leave you that space 
to sort of speculate what's happened. Uh, I mean, I have to say that my solution in the in the book is is entirely fictional. Um, so, uh, so that that uh, and uh, and I, I I hope I make that clear. Um, but um, but yes, I mean, I think that there are the, that there is that sort of. Uh, that's one of the one of the interesting things about Amy's story. I think you could speculate on any one of those solutions to to the mystery and make a good case for any of them in in a fictional narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to the, the aftermath, then obviously it's a very tragic thing. A young woman loses her her life. You know, and it, it obviously has an impact on on Dudley's um, prospects. What, what's known about how the Queen reacted? What was her her initial reaction to it? Yes, well, I think. I think she also, like like um, like Robert Dudley, saw how incredibly dangerous this was for her, um, because um, she just simply could not be tainted by that particular scandal. I mean, it, it was it, it was a gift really to all those to all those who who wanted to, and there were plenty of, of people who wanted to see Dudley's influence um, reduced, if you like. Um, I think superficially she she distanced herself from him she sent him away the court wore black uh, which felt like <laughs> it, it it feels a little hypocritical uh, but uh, but they 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 kind of um, they did uh, observe the niceties um i think underneath that it, there was no likelihood at all of elizabeth wanting to distance herself from from the emotional support she was getting from Robert Dudley. Uh, She just didn't want it to be too blatant at that time. And of course, the other thing is, who knows whether Elizabeth ever really um, entertained the idea of marrying Dudley or indeed anybody else. But I think it it most definitely put that out of all possible uh, reckoning, I don't think. I, I think... I mean, I'm inclined to, inclined to think that she never intended to marry him or indeed anyone anyway. Uh, but I but I think she kind of wanted her cake and, and, and eating it, really. She wanted him around um, and, and all, all the benefits of his company. She really did. She loved him. I mean, I think she really did love him as a, as a friend and as somebody who understood her and, and, and they were very close. But of course... She just couldn't be seen to be to be tainted with that particular scandal. So uh, yeah, that was the end of his hopes. But uh, <laughs> I can't be sorry for that, really. <laughs> no, not too much. Um, you mentioned Scott already, and I, I was uh, wondering if we could chat a bit about how Amy was then represented after her death. You know, what are the the sources there that tell us how she was viewed, how her death was viewed? Yes, it's uh, her story uh, starts to grow. Uh, well, almost in, well in two different ways, I think. I mean, first of all, um, there's there's uh, those people who want who want to continue to use this story against Robert Dudley, and they know it's always going to be a stick to beat him with. Every time it seems he's particularly influential, they can drag it out again and remember, you know, he killed his wife, kind of thing. So, of course, there's Leicester's Commonwealth, which is the first uh, written by his enemies, which is is sort of the first. Uh, I think the first written piece that comes out directly in writing, accusing him of murdering his wife. Um, and that acts as a, a sort of inspiration for fictional writers. And already by the 17th century, there are plays um, in, in which it's uh, early 17th century, I think 1610 might be at 1608, 1610 was the first uh, reference to an anonymous 
Uh, they refer to him as a politician uh, killing his wife. Uh, and then, of course, there's the white devil, which also draws on that a similar kind of, uh, of idea. Um, so all these rumours uh, were present through the next, through the, through the, um, the 17th um, and into the 18th century. But I think it, we, we do owe an awful lot to Walter Scott, if you want to look at it that way, in, in terms of turning Amy and the story into this idea of the innocent, tragic heroine who's so uh, badly mistreated, because, of course, it is Scott's book, Kenilworth, which came out in 1821, that also chimes so beautifully with the whole, um, both the romantic kind of idea of uh, the romanticism of... of, of, um, the, the 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 wildness that he draws in all the, I mean he well for a start he conflates lots of different people into Amy but he also sort of draws on the wildness of the countryside and he makes a great rollicking story of it all in fact as a, an interesting sideline uh, I actually discovered when I was researching it that Sir Walter Scott uh, came to stay in my village where I live when he was researching Wayland Smithy which features in Kenilworth uh, as part of, of Amy's story. Uh, I had absolutely no idea about that. So that was an astonishing uh, discovery. But So he throws in all the galloping through the wild Oxfordshire countryside and he really makes a big a big romantic tale of it. And, of course, there's also the Gothic element, the, 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 the horrible death, the evil, uh, the, 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 the evil assailants who work for Robert. So he makes this great yarn of it and, of course, it takes off after that. The whole story just flies there are operas inspired by it there are plays there are other stories and that brings it into the public consciousness in the Victorian period um, and it's interesting also that that's the point that all the ghost stories about Amy take off as well so you don't hear about Amy's I mean you hear it backdated but you don't hear records of Amy's ghost apparently being seen before before the 19th century. And I think that, that's that's kind of very telling that it caught the public imagination. So how, how would you, um, I guess, you know, with, perhaps with your historian's hat on and with your historical novelist hat on, how, how would you like to see Amy's story, you know, being maybe reappraised or, you know, how would you like people to think of her beyond what's already, you know, there in, in the popular consciousness? I think we can't get away from Amy's end, but I uh, and and the sadness of her death, and probably the fact that that mystery will never be particularly solved. But I would very much, I hope, I've put more emphasis on what what happened before that, more emphasis on Amy as a person in her own right. So I think what I was trying to do with my research into the book and also with the story itself was just to say, you know. Amy deserves to be more than just a woman in the footnotes. She deserves to be um, looked at, you know, her life deserves to be researched. Uh, She was a person in her own right. Uh, And it's interesting um, to find out more about her as that historical character, rather than somebody who's just swept up in the bigger narrative of Robert and Elizabeth. So I hope that that's what I've done in the book. and, and, And I hope that it will... You know, generate more interest in, in Amy herself because I think she did have in her short life um, a very interesting story. That was Nicola Cornick. Her novel, The Forgotten Sister, is published by HQ and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 
Tune in tomorrow for another lecture on medieval life. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.